time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. It is Monday, August 9th, and we're in Orlando, Florida at the Lenders One Summer Conference. It's so good to be together with so many of our friends and customers. A lot of customers have come to us through the Lenders One Network. And we're just thrilled to see everybody. This podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. And we're so glad to have you as our listener. Again, our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. In the Hot Topics segment, we caught up with Taylor Stork, who's Executive Vice President, Chief Operating Officer for Developers Mortgage. We also caught up with Wayne King, President of Encompass Lending Group. And you're going to hear in the Hot Topic them give updates of what's going on in their companies, things that they're dealing with, looking at, and there's some really interesting information as to how they're sorting through all the technology and how important it is to stay in touch with them. We're going to, have to be talking to a lot of technology people here at the conference, a lot of vendors. One thing about the Lenders One conference they have, it's called the Connection Hall. We call it the Speed Dating Session. It's where every 20 minutes you rotate tables and you talk to the various vendor members, which we are one of them, and it's a great way to get to know and talk to everyone. So our plate is full of meetings during that time as well as the other time, but you're going to enjoy the interviews that we did with both Taylor and Wayne. I want to also say to our friends at Industry Syndicate how pleased we are to be a part of the organization at industrysyndicate.com. encourage you to check out all the podcasts there. And also, I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, which, of course, is the Mortgage Bankers Association of America, as well as Finastra, with their Fusion Mortgage Bot Solutions, sets the customer standard with their decision parameters and helping streamline and the approval process while keeping their lending team compliant and efficient. So great technology and some new things they have going on. Check it out. Be sure to get a hold of Dan Putney or one of his sales team to give you an update on all that's going on. If you have a, a contract that's renewing, you really need to check out what Finastra is doing. Third largest fintech company, and they are leading the way. Also check out Lenders One. Of course, we're here at the conference. Encourage you to become a member of Lenders One. Also, we're part of the Mortgage Collaborative, another co-op that does a great job of collecting lenders and vendors and then creating peer groups. Both these co-ops create peer group connections that are so meaningful. And you're gonna hear more about that in the interviews we did with Taylor and Wayne here a little bit later in the Hot Topic segment. Also wanna say a thank you to Community Mortgage Lenders of America, as well as Incelerate, as well as KnowledgeCoop, as well as the Mobility Mortgage Market Intelligence Platform, and Modex, as well as our regulars, Rob Van Raphorst, Les Parker, Alice Alvey, Alan Pollock, and Matt Graham. Let's get over to Les Parker with this week's TM Spotlight and the macro view of the markets. Les? TM Spotlight Soundbites is brought to you by Power Seller, making hedging easy. This is job celebration. Grow more. So is it time to celebrate with two solid job reports in a row? Is oil celebrating the U.S. economy riding high? Oil says no, as it fell a buck and a quarter. How did gold vote? It dropped $45. Who else is not celebrating? The long and short end of the treasury curve. 
The disappointment did nothing to disrupt the bearish trend. The downshift in commodities supports the bond bulls coming back during the Fed's Jackson Hole event. The market sees a committed Fed. Bonds celebrate. Bonds celebrate. It's all right. These views are my own. Want more to celebrate? Sign up at tmspotlight.com. Thanks, Les. Good report. I always love the music parody. Do a great job. Kudos to you and Gary Kentrabone for putting that together. Now let's get over to Matt Graham to find out what's happening in the markets live. Matt is the founder and CEO of MBS Live, which is a great platform for all the market updates, see what's going on real time in the market. So Matt, what you have for a report on this week? This is Matt Graham with the MBS Live market update. Bonds started the week in great shape, but began to lose ground on Wednesday and ultimately jumped to the weakest levels in several weeks on Friday, with the obvious culprit being the non-farm payrolls number, the big jobs report coming in at 943K versus 870K forecast. That in and of itself wouldn't necessarily be terrible, although it's great when we have more people with more jobs. That's awesome for the economy. Usually it's bad for rates, and that's what I meant by terrible. And this report had other aspects that made it sort of stronger than it seemed at first glance. We had the average work week ticking up to 34.8 versus a forecast of 34.7. Not technically a tick up since it was at that same level last month, but higher than forecast. And the earnings stayed at 0.4, a higher than expected growth rate. So more hours being worked for higher pay implies there are additional payrolls that could be squeezed out of the current labor market output, the overall level of labor needs out there among employers. And not only that, but when we turn to the household survey, which is what the government does when they call people and actually ask them if they're employed, if they want to be, what they're doing to look for work and all that, the unemployment rate, which a lot of people don't know, comes from the household survey moved down to 5.4% versus expectations of 5.7% and a previous reading of 5.9. That's a really big move. And oftentimes when we see moves of that size, they are explained away, for lack of a better term, by the labor force participation rate. That's just a measure of how many people consider themselves to be part of the labor force. It moved down significantly during the financial crisis and again right after COVID. It's been moving back up since then. It's not at pre-COVID levels. And this particular month, it moved up 0.1%. So we don't have any sort of offsetting factor for the drop in the unemployment rate. That's a, a strong signal from the economy. The only caveat that some people threw out after the jobs report was that there were strong seasonal distortions due to differences in schedules for school employees and also a fairly substantial return in leisure and hospitality industries in the month of July. So those distortions could result in a big miss in the next report. And we may see that ultimately reflected in forecasts. If it's not, then the big implication becomes one Fed tapering and not whether or not they taper, but more about the timeline. Fed's Waller yesterday said that the Fed would need to see two jobs reports in the 1 million jobs neighborhood in order to justify a tapering decision in September. This would be one of those two reports. 
puts a lot of emphasis on the next jobs report a month from now, and also makes uh, Fed Chair Powell's speech at the Jackson Hole Symposium very, very interesting at the end of the month, because we need to see if he's going to say something to the effect of, yeah, man, in light of that jobs report, I think we might actually consider tapering in September if the next one's as, as good as this one. If Powell takes that tone, it's going to be bad for bonds. It's not going to be like the 2013 taper tantrum, but it would put upward pressure on rates, all other things being equal. It's more of a course correction at this point because, yes, this economic data does tell us something about the economy, but there's still a lot to learn in the coming months about how the post-COVID economy is going to evolve. Not because we're going to be post-COVID technically, but because we're going to learn a lot about how the numbers change or level off with respect to the Delta variant surge and how things change when a majority of the country has kids who are back in school. There are a lot of concerns about how disease may spread and whether or not it will sort of create another disconcerting wave in the winter that disrupts the economy. If there's anything that might sort of push the Fed off the fence one way or the other. It's that uncertainty relating to how the wintertime months may go, but that we may see enough of a change in COVID numbers before then for them to make a decision and for the economy really to put up the numbers that would allow the Fed to make a decision. And it's not just U.S. data, by the way. If we see other countries sort of having initial Delta-related spikes and then recovering from those and then having hospitalizations and deaths remain lower, than they were during previous COVID case count spikes. It'll go a long way toward calming nerves, toward keeping businesses open, and toward keeping the economy chugging along to such an extent to grease the skids for the Fed to pull away easy policies if that's what they want to do. As far as next week is concerned, not as significant on the economic data front, but we do have a few reports that could move the needle a little bit. The core CPI on Wednesday comes to mind. It's seen dropping a little bit from the 45 percent level reached last month and we have producer prices the following day not as big of a market mover there but very big numbers with the core level expected at 5.6 percent inflation expectations are part of the consumer sentiment data they're worth keeping an eye on but the fed's also looking at market-based inflation expectations which are derived from the difference between tips yields and 10-year treasury yields. Last but not least, it is an auction week with threes, tens, and thirties on Tuesday through Thursday, respectively. And if there is any big deviation in the auction results from recent averages or from the 1 p.m. when issued yield, which is sort of like the market's expectation for the auction results, then that could serve to act as a sort of vote on the recent rise in rates seen at the end of this week. And that would be worth a little bit of market movement, nothing on the order of today's NFP, unless it was just absolutely outside the previous averages, but just something to be aware of in terms of small-scale volatility throughout the week. In terms of technical levels, what we're looking to determine is whether yields in the bond market are leveling off in a sideways range capped by roughly 1.3% in the 10-year, or whether they are exiting a downtrend that would be marked by a trend channel resting along the lower highs and lower lows in yields over the last two months. Today would be the first breakout of such a downtrend, and then it becomes important to see how the coming trading days fare. If we continue to operate outside of that 
downtrend, then it would be a negative input for the bond market, all other things being equal. If we are able to do that, but also hold below 1.3%, then that would keep hope alive that we are trying to consolidate in more of a sideways pattern with more of a wait and see mindset heading into the end of month Jackson Hole stuff. That'll do it for this week. Be back with you guys next week. Thanks, Matt, for that update. Folks, you can sign up for an extended trial period with Matt's service at mbslive.net. And you can do so by putting in the words LOL in the signup code and you'll get the no credit card required and you get the extended trial period. I encourage you to do so if you haven't already done so. Next, we've got Alice Alvey on the lineup and we're always interested in what Alice has to say and as are many of you. So Alice, CMB, Vice President in Education, Training with Union Home Mortgage. What do you have for this week's legislative update? Thanks, Dave. And hello, everyone. Alice Alvey here to talk to you about two really fun super topics. Topics, right? So how many people actually love talking about FHA regulations and compliance? <laughs> so anyway, that's me. And here's our first topic up for today. FHA tax prorations. We are super excited that in the new updated 4000.1, one of the areas of clarification that FHA added was regarding tax prorations. As an industry, we have gone back and forth ever since I can remember. So I taught and spoke about FHAs for over 22 years in public settings at many state conferences. And this would come up as we were talking FHA and the taxes paid in arrears. So therefore the borrower is receiving a tax credit on the CD. Of course, this always goes all the way back to when we had a HUD-1. And how does that credit get treated in calculating the borrower's minimum investment requirement at the time of underwriting and at the time of closing? Those were two separate issues even. So HUD finally cleared this up for us and leveled the playing field because I think across the industry, we've had a lot of different companies treating this differently and not treating it correctly. So HUD is very clear now in the 4,000 at the time of underwriting, you must document the borrower's minimum required investment, including down payment, closing costs, and other prepaid items without consideration of any real estate tax credit. So at the time we underwrite the loan, we can't start thinking, oh, wait a minute, they're not really going to have to bring all of this money to closing because they're going to get, you know, say a number tax credit on the CD. And so they're actually going to be able to bring less. And many loan officers today were either underestimating how they would calculate the escrow in order to artificially show the tax credit, or they would outright show the tax credit. Certainly, we want to inform our borrowers that they're going to be eligible for this, and that helps customers. But in our actual underwriting of the file, we can't use it to shorten up how much we have to verify in funds to close. FHA is completely clear on this. It's not ambiguous or gray anymore. And I hope all lenders across the country start properly doing this at application so we have a level playing field. Now, when we get to closing, the good news in FHA's interpretation is that 
yes, the tax credit can be applied. And there are some areas of the country, like Illinois comes to mind, where there could be a very substantial tax credit on a very expensive home with high taxes, for example. And in that area, that tax credit can be so large that it now on the CD looks like the borrower doesn't have a 3% minimum investment. Now, in the old days, that would have been a problem because old FHA math was that CD or that HUD-1 had to show that the borrower met that 3% minimum investment. And so the 4001 is clear now that that's okay. They can get their tax credit. We don't have to start doing hokey things with the CD. And because at the time of underwriting, we took care of and made sure we verified all the funds. This is going to make some people not very happy at the time of underwriting. A lot of people will say, I don't understand it. They don't really need to bring that money. Why do we have to verify it? I get it, but we've all got to follow the FHA policy to make sure our loans are going to get insured. So that's my big news out of the 4,000 today. We'll keep scouring it to see if there are any other nuggets of change in there that maybe haven't been highlighted in the transmittal. Next and last is the update that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau sent out. So they released on August 5th an interpretation related to the fact that we've got Juneteenth was set as a National Independence Day Act and therefore a federal holiday two days before the holiday went into effect. And we have three-day rules for various compliance items and disclosures. And so they did clarify that if the time period began on or before June 17th, then June 19th was considered a regular business day. Boy, wouldn't that have been nice to know back at the time. There's a little bit of, well, the water is under the bridge or over the dam, however you want to look at it. We all tried to scramble to get into compliance with the existing law, but at least it's good to know that we've got this interpretive rule. In case you've got some loans out there that you're concerned about that didn't quite meet the mark, now you know how to interpret it. It's based on when did the time period begin? And if it began before the law went into place, then we didn't have to treat it as a federal holiday. That's my understanding. We'll keep checking with all the real smart compliance people out there to make sure we're all looking at this the same way. And I'll get back with you if there's anything different. But that's my report for today. Dave, back to you. Thanks, Alice. Appreciate that. Good job. Alan Pollock is here with this week's weekly tech update. Alan, what you got? Hey, David. Thanks for having me today. Glad to be here. TGIM, as you always say. Thank God it's Monday. I think I may have mentioned this one in the past. It's kind of funny. You know, we talk about technology all the time and, you know, <laughs> is it help us or not help us? Well, this one's great. Somebody posted, I was driving and my phone vibrated in my pocket to tell me this, quote, you will not receive notifications while you're driving. So obviously that was very helpful. We'll talk about testing at the end of the segment here. Let's get on to some mortgage news. So I saw this. I thought this was uh, very interesting. Figure blockchain technology. That's what they focus on. And Homebridge Financial are merging, and they're going to reshape the tech landscape, as they say, of the mortgage industry through blockchain. Blockchain, we continue to talk about that as we see really interesting articles in the news. It is definitely, it's been proven to make things more efficient and faster, but it does in small silos, in my opinion, at the moment. So this is going to be really interesting. They have a large impact for two companies, and there's going to be more about blockchain, of course, as we continue the remainder of this year into next year. I think that we're going to see tech budgets really focus more on blockchain. More to come, but check it out, Figure and Homebridge Financial. David, and to our audience, this is coming directly out of Silicon Valley. And it basically says that the pandemic, as it's done so many things, I guess, to us at this point, the pandemic drives couples to therapy. 
startups are like relationships. That's what some Silicon Valley therapists are pitching. I don't know if you've seen the show Silicon Valley. It's immediately what makes me think about. Clearly, there is a lot of push and pull in those kind of relationships, but I think it is probably not a bad idea. And there's probably consultants, I think, that do a better job than therapists. Although I've never been there, so I can't say. But if you feel like there's a push and pull relationship, go check it out. Silicon Valley therapists, the pandemic driving couples to therapy. So check this out. Back to the blockchain topic from a moment ago. Liquid Mortgage, they've been issued a U.S. patent for its distributed ledger technology. For those of you that don't know what DLT is, that it basically is blockchain. For supporting its vision for the future of debt markets, they've been issued an actual patent. And it's called Decentralized Systems and Methods for Managing Loans and Securities. And their aim is to make debt markets more efficient and transparent while lowering the overall ecosystem cost. Uh, and as you know, you know, there's the cost of origination. And there's, of course, the cost to sell it on the secondary market. So really interesting to see what they're going to do there, especially depending on how long you hold that asset and what the prepayment speeds of those assets are. We're going to continue, as I mentioned earlier, to see more about blockchain pop up in a lot of these areas. So, David, I've been chatting with a number of lenders and friends of mine have chat with friends of theirs and their friends, and everyone's talked to somebody at this point. What I've found is that not everybody has really adopted digital mortgage technology. We continue to see articles online about what you need to focus on and the fact that we need to speed the things up. Have we spent too much money on our digital mortgage solutions? Well, I think there's an easy solution to answering only part of the question. And that is that some folks, their aspirations are too far away or they have too many. And they make rapid decisions about what they want and what's needed to get there. But what they don't understand is how long will it take and what are the smaller milestones. And so what's really important is socialization of features. What is it that you actually want to do and how do you get the opinion of the different personas or the people that interact with those personas? Almost like couples therapy, right? How to understand who you're talking to and the different environments that you're in. Well, it's the same thing with product features. And so it's really important, and especially if you have a product manager, whether you're a software company or a lender, you still need a product manager. And that person's job is to understand what those aspirations are and how do you get there. The most important thing I can leave everybody with today, we can talk next week about what is socialization and as a product manager, how can you really get the opinion of different people and get to what we call ideation? but it's talking to your vendors. The best thing you can do leaving this podcast today is make sure you talk to your vendors and understand how can you meet those smaller milestones to get to your larger aspirations. And then David, in addition to talking about ideation next week, I think we're gonna talk a little bit about testing, QA, so we don't get that phone buzzing in our pocket, letting us know we won't get messages when we're driving. Hope everyone has a great Monday. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, you know how to get a hold of David or myself, but you can reach me, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, at tms-advisors.com. Have a great week, everyone. Alan, thanks for that update. Appreciate it. Folks, that ends the weekly mortgage update part of this podcast. Well, that wraps up this week's Hot Topic segment and this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, Finastra, CMLA, Lenders One, Incelerate. Mobility MMI, Modex, MBA, and Knowledge Coop, as well as the Mortgage Collaborative. Be sure to come back here next week. We have as our guest, Dr. Paul White, 
And this, I pre-recorded this interview, and I got to tell you, it talks about the language that we need to use for motivating and challenging our employees and speaking their language. You're going to love what he has to say, and I'm excited to share this interview. So be sure to come back next week. Have a great week, everybody. Look forward to having you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.